Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. back it's recovery sort of i am jason a guy who believes in free drugs for everyone and i'm billy i'm a person in long-term recovery and i'm jenny and i'm a person in long-term recovery too and we are going to be talking about an article uh that comes from our media but that is about a new program of harm reduction methods in vancouver and we will get around to that just shortly but we do have some recap to go through um so we got some feedback somebody said we should do an episode, this was Holly actually, on being sick in recovery. Not necessarily long-term illness, but rather the average colds, etc. that you get. She's ill with a cold at the moment, and the symptoms mimic withdrawal, and it is a mind fuck. I struggled with that a lot in my recovery, like probably the first eight, ten years, I don't know. Like, But yeah, I always, every time I was sick, that was like the most pressing time in my mind where I thought, Drugs would fix this <laughs> because it did. It felt just like being, you know, having that that huh. kind of dope sick ill feeling. I'm wondering, I guess that doesn't apply to alcohol. Did you get sick feeling when you didn't have alcohol? Not like you guys did. So maybe that's yeah. like a heroin specific problem. Yeah. I don't ever hear about people like smoking weed and getting sick. And I've, I've never, I mean, when I'm sick, I've always felt like I'm sick. And huh. I've been through heroin withdrawal, but I, I just didn't make that correlation. Like maybe weird. it's like an inability to tolerate that that illness feeling or that I don't know. Mm. I don't know. That could be interesting. I, I honestly, ever since she sent it, like I I feel like it's super valid, but I never feel like I figured out any way to make it better. So <laughs> right. I have like no good information to give on it. Yeah. I have no clue what we'd talk about. But maybe. Maybe that's, that's where my future. lack of compassion comes in because I went through it. It's like, well, just suck it the fuck up. <laughs> Get through it. You need that compassion. A couple of days. ain't going to kill you. Uh, <laughs> another person. So it's, it, this is on Spotify, I guess. We get to put up the question, what topic would you like to hear more about? And they can answer. Um, so somebody used that method to reach us and answer, but it wasn't about a topic. And they are apparently their name is Music Dreams, which is kind of cool. Uh, I will say again, I love your podcast. Very helpful. And I laugh throughout these. Thanks again. So thank nice. you, Music Dreams. Oh, we're hilarious. We hope feedback. we're funny. Yeah. <laughs> we laugh at each other. So. Yeah, that's for sure. Another piece of feedback we got from Stephanie, who did an episode with us at one point a long time ago. You were here. Was I? I think. Is she the mom? Yeah. Okay, I remember. That's yep. what the episode Funny, was. I just re-listened to that. Did you? Yes. Okay. Well, Stephanie reached out after listening to the Married and Recovering episode. Uh, she says, number one, Jen's voice is like a warm hug. I know. It's so <laughs> fucking hard to argue with her. Um, and two, when Steph, this is about Stephanie. When my husband and I met, we were at different stages of recovery, but we had the same values and goals. I had negative one day and he had over a year. LOL. But we both had the same goals, so it was easy to stay on the same page most of the time. And when we went through tough times, it wasn't the end of the world, and we made it back without burning it all down. 
She said it was awesome to hear the different perspectives. And once again, she was wrong about a few things. And that's great. Thanks to you guys. Um, you know, when she was sharing that with me, it brought up an interesting piece for me. Like we are always talking about, and I guess I thought this was what was going to come out in that marriage episode, like these rules, like you have different home groups and keep your recovery separate. And, you know, 13 stepping is a terrible thing. And I think that is a thing we think generally 13 stepping is terrible. And then Jen came on that episode and was sharing all these couples. She knows that, you know, if we wanted to technically apply the 13th step took place in those relationships. Right. And they've worked out great. And so I started wondering, like, okay, is it possible? Sure. People are out there taking advantage of newcomers and, you know, preying on them or however we like to frame it. Yes, that is absolutely possible that that's happening. But if you really think about it, if I came into recovery and I have no idea how to live in the world and I'm like coming from a a dangerous survival place, if I was to, you know, quote unquote, shack up with somebody who had a life based in recovery. I'm kind of putting myself in an extremely safe environment for my first couple of months in recovery. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's like the most ideal place a newcomer could be is in an environment that's kind of already established to be a safe environment, right? A home that doesn't have drugs and alcohol laying around with a person who goes to meetings every night with a person who's got all friends who don't use substance. Like that seems like a really healthy place to be. So I was like, I don't know, man, maybe not that the 13th step is a good idea, but I'm like, Maybe there's positives to that. Right, and it's more the behavior, not necessarily the overarching you shouldn't get in relationships thing. Because if you're out preying on people that are new, that's very different than trying to enter into a relationship with someone that doesn't have a lot of time. Like, those two things are are different. It's I mean, it's definitely difficult to be in a relationship early in recovery no matter what because the tendency is to put that relationship ahead of your recovery and then you know you don't stick around it's hard enough for new people to stick around but and i'm sure you've seen it i've seen it over the years that happens with people with time i mean people get four or five years of time and hook up with someone else with time and then they get married and have kids and they stop fucking coming around like the same exact thing happens but we don't call it 13 stepping you know 14 stepping right it's something else i always thought people got in relationships like 13 step relationship it's because they're not they should be spending the time looking into themselves and yet they're exploring this other person so that's why i thought yeah, and like in our case, so that's Jen and I were, I had a couple months clean when her and I got together and she had 12 years. Um, but the point that I tried to stress there for me was I didn't put that relationship ahead of my recovery. Like I still went to meetings all the time. I still worked on myself. I did all the things I would do if I wasn't in that relationship. I just added a relationship into my recovery program. I didn't supplement my recovery program with that relationship and that's why you're a winner yeah that's why it worked um i don't know i guess this could be a whole nother side conversation right which maybe we do need an episode on the 13th step you know but this idea of like we say people are preying on newcomers and when you say that you're picturing this like i don't know maybe you're not picturing this this is what i'm picturing (laughs) i'm picturing this like older guy he sits in his basement and like he's got these pictures on his wall, like plotting out like, oh, yeah, she came in this day. She's got six days. That's that's probably a good target next. Right. You know what I mean? Like it seems so, so 
convoluted when we talk about it like preying on people and like really in my understanding what's going on more than that is that you have an individual that really struggles to tolerate life and feelings and their nervous system and they go with what works for them whatever coping method has ever brought relief and that happens to be new relationships or sex and so they run through new relationships and sex, trying to keep recreating that relieving feeling. So it's not like this terrible monster out here plotting to steal our little girls, right? It's more just somebody who's trying to But interact. they are there. That's the scary part. But I don't know. Does that even exist? Or 100%. Is, I don't know. I could, well, we talk off air. I tell you a few of them. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's, you know, those people exist too. And unfortunately, we're in a fellowship with a lot of mentally not well people and people that are emotionally not well mm. so they make some really predatory type decisions like those i guess my take on it is just looking at it from the outside what looks like a predator and prey situation is probably a lot more just this person doesn't know how to handle their life and this brings them a sense of relief like that's why we do things we do them because they feel good i don't think i don't think it looks in that person's brain and body the way we're picturing it looking from outside of the view that's i guess my take on it but i don't want to get too lost in that yeah well somebody with 10 years you know like sobriety or clean time you know that doesn't make them sane they can still be very deep in their sickness you know just because they're abstinent from substances right so that happens believe me but i think the idea is more of a, a you should know better kind of thing like if you're that person you know, you could go to prostitutes or somewhere else. Why are you going to prey on young, new, vulnerable people that are coming into our fellowship? Like, it's not the idea isn't that you have a sexual issue. So that makes you a horrible person. It's that you're and it goes back to the compassion thing. Like, this is our tribe. This is our group. And we're supposed to be protecting and loving each other because we're mm -hmm. all the same. And yet you're a person that's going to come in here and take advantage of, you know, <laughs> That's weaker, funny because not weaker, but you know, <laughs> that sounds like, oh, well, we got to take care of our own. But those sex workers that haven't made it in here yet, go ahead and well, <laughs> use I'm that. Just, yeah. <laughs> now, I guess the thing that's interesting is you talked about we think people should know better. And yet one of the pieces of literature that always stuck out to me, and I, I want to say it's in the step working guide, maybe not. But it says, are you plagued by the idea that you should know better? And what I've always taken out of that is that knowing better has never been our fucking answer. We knew better before we got into drugs. I knew heroin and cocaine and shooting it into my veins was a terrible idea, but knowing better never fixed me. So it's interesting that we say once we get to recovery, oh, well, knowing better now should have fixed you. You should have stopped doing that. I don't know that we say it should have fixed you, but it there's you just there's certain behaviors like you don't just be like, well. You're sick, so that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, if you're stealing the home group money, we don't just go, oh, well, you're fine. You can keep being the treasurer. Just keep stealing the money. That's fine. Like, you say, no, you have some issues there you need to address. You know right. what I mean? We're going to try to protect ourselves from you because you do this. We should try to do it without judgment and like, hey, that's what we do. We fucking steal money. You know, right. that's we can do it with empathy and love, but you don't fucking hand them the keys and the bag of money again and go, we'll do better next time. You know, <laughs> no bad people, just bad actions. Right. Well, I want to move on to this next yeah. comment because it's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dave, who's joined us for a couple of conversations, one of them, uh, the most recently, the spiritual bypassing topic, which was 
a really good episode. Uh, he commented on our YouTube a couple weeks ago and said, nice guns, Jason. So, <laughs> thank you, Dave. I, I appreciate someone noticing. <laughs> Dave's like a hugging a rock, too. So <laughs> I, it feels even better coming from him. I'm not going to lie. He's a solid dude. Uh, so now the, the really interesting one that I, I am curious of your guys' takes on it. So, so disappointed in your episode on the AA Big Book, especially the two wives. I found your comments based on ignorance. Being a wife and a long-term Al-Anon member, this chapter, while it does use old-fashioned language, is solid advice for partners or wives of alcoholics. Often an alcoholic will use their partner in numerous ways to keep the illness strong and continue to drink, so the advice given is helping partners to avoid being part of that. I nagged, scolded, threatened, left him, came back, begged. A huge range of strategies and nothing worked to get him sober because his drinking wasn't about me or within my control. I couldn't love him sober or hate him sober. What I didn't realize was that I was part of the cycle. There's an interesting pamphlet maybe you should read to help you make more informed statements. A merry-go-round called Denial. The wives or partners of alcoholics are often quite sick too and often addicted to their partners and the drama and misery that surrounds them. So this advice is the... B-I-G-N-O-R. Maybe that's supposed to be a big book. This advice in the big book is given to the recovering drinker, and it's about navigating this new family situation. It's of its time, but I was able to relate to it this time, to this time, to my life, my relationship, and my family, and it worked for us and many others. This fellowship has given many addicts and alcoholics their lives back. Interesting that they say addicts. Um has given many alcoholics and addicts their lives back and also their families get a chance to recover from the trauma. Please consider your words carefully. If your words had influenced my recovering alcoholic partner, then my family would not have the peace and love it's had for the last 10 years. Please be careful and do your research. You seem like an intelligent enough person. Thank you. So, I mean, I, I what I do appreciate is that this is more of a thoughtful comment instead of just saying that was a dumb episode. That was stupid. The big book is great. Like there's actual yeah. thought and, and Super in, thoughtful you know, comment. yeah, no. So I appreciate that. And you know, even though it seems slightly backhanded, the, you seem like an intelligent enough person was nice, uh, but I, I, yeah, I don't know, I guess. So uh, can I just say, I, I would need to re-listen to the episode. I mean, for me, it was, the issues were around the old timey language and this sort of sexist idea that the alcoholic was always the male and that the stay at home person was always the female. Like to me, that was kind of what I thought we were laughing at most. Um, it wasn't necessarily specifically the information in how to handle it. If they updated it with partner or spouse or whatever and took out some of the gender specific roles and gender specific stuff I and updated some of the you know mm -hmm. or some of the words they were I can't remember some of the funny old timey right, words right. that they use at the moment sock hopper yeah it was what like was yeah the, sock hopper was the party? teetotaling and you know these <laughs> weird old timey terms I love that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I, I don't I mean there's a lot of great information in the big book well and and you know, coming from that standpoint of what you're saying, like, this is great that it helped uh, a wife of someone in AA, right? The, her situation kind of matches what I guess it would have looked like in 1939. But how many husbands 
are saying, oh, yeah, man, I read the two wives section and it totally felt relatable to me, too. And it helped our marriage. My alcoholic wife. I'm an ally. Right. You know what I mean? Like they would probably say this, if anything, made me feel more pushed away from the program. So it's great that it fit for your particular situation. It's almost like, you know, uh, me coming in here and saying, you know, I did some I don't know, just some off the wall stuff, man. Like I, I go outside and bury my head in the dirt every night for five minutes. And like, that has just created such great change in my life. Maybe it did, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a practice that we all want to go out and do. Right. Or maybe it was just some me setting a routine and a goal. And then I did it. And that's the part of it that actually mattered. And it wasn't actually having my head in the dirt that made any difference at all. You know what I mean? Like it's just claiming that something worked because it worked for one person or it worked for me or worked for a million people. That's great. But what if it didn't work for 30 million at the same time? We don't, I feel like we forget to look at the other aspect. Like, Hey, this worked for millions, but what about the countless millions that it didn't work for because it's the way it is. Right. I mean, and again, I, thought when we kind of joked about it it was about maybe updating it or or changing it in a way that was more inclusive and more helpful for more people like it doesn't mean that information's bad it's just maybe limited or presented in a way that there was some information that was bad though yeah Yeah. like yeah Yeah. Yeah. i remember like there were more familiar um but like i think jason pointed out like there was one tip in there that was like you know don't leave your husband yes exactly (laughs) like and like you know, back in those days, like if, if your husband hit you, it's because, you know, you, you were sass mouthing him or whatever, you know, like, (laughs) you know, and so that doesn't fly today. You don't. (laughs) Sass mouth. (laughs) No, no, I, I'm totally on board with Jenny. Like, I think a lot of it was the fact that it's not inclusive for sure. The wording, but there was also the aspect of like, I seriously, as a therapist, questioned some of the fucking guidance okay. in there. I was like, this is setting people up to get hurt if they follow this. Because I read this. it before we did that episode. I'd have to go back and read it again. Yeah, I don't remember the specifics too. either. And and that's where I think I would challenge this individual personally. Like, okay, fine. You don't think the language needs to be updated? That's fine. I think that hinders people from getting the information in 2022. Maybe you don't. That's okay. We disagree. But I would definitely challenge them that some of that information really seems dangerous in the light of the world we live in today. And that's where I'm like, I just can't get on board with saying two wives is a positive section the way it's written. If they rewrote it, if it was two partners, if it had, you know, hey, make sure you protect yourself first before you worry about your fucking alcoholic partner, then maybe I'm on board. But the way it's written, yeah. So I appreciate your comment. Uh, yeah, I, I love mean, the uh, comment. I love, like, I, I, I yeah. enjoy this kind of conversation. So right, and and thank I, you for writing in. You know, I mean, there was a couple little jabs in there, <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm giving bad information. Uh, but I appreciate the check. Right, gave me time to rethink about it. So thank you guys, as always, for the the feedback. We love it. It, it helps us understand what we're doing, and you know, tackle these subjects for maybe places we didn't think about. So, all right, on to the topic of the day, Vancouver, Canada, forefront of like, at least in our Western environment, doing what we would consider wild, crazy new ideas to see what can help the opioid epidemic, right? They're, they're tired of seeing people die uh, from overdoses. And I guess it seems at least in that region of Canada, if not in Canada in general, 
maybe there's not as much pressure because they're not the, you know, they're not the number one country in the world. They don't have to be like the world's <laughs> leaders or anything. So they can just kind of play around with shit and see if it works. I feel right. like better than the U S can. Like we feel like we have to hold on to this moral standpoint or something. Like, I don't, are we the moral police of the world? Uh, we try to be. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, we dictate to other countries, drug policies and stuff based off money and financing to them for, you know, I I believe there's some or there used to be some things in place to where if your country ever decriminalized drugs or legalized drugs, you know, we would reduce funding or say we wouldn't support you and not give finance. So, yes, there's some of that that goes on, too. The difference in Canada, too, is the socialized medicine. So the the government is more in charge of how it's spending mm. that. There's a, like they have more money to play with. Right. To decide. So who wants to describe the, the fentanyl dispensary? Well, can I also just mention briefly, sure. too, if that book in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, that's actually written from a doctor that worked in that whole mm. area of Vancouver. And it gave a pretty interesting, to me, an interesting insight from an I'm going to say an outsider point of view. He's not an outsider, but he's not an addict either. It wasn't an addict who's given you their representation of something. This is a medical doctor who worked in that environment and his experience. And it isn't specifically about this topic, but it gives you some insight into what's going on in that part of the country and their country. And, it, and it's interesting as a guy who's not a drug addict, he does identify so much with the process of obsession and compulsion in his life yeah. in different ways his is like classical music and he right. he kind of jokes throughout <laughs> the thing of like you know how can this be as bad and yet he has all these similar feelings and ways of acting and sneaking and like hiding his cd purchases of classical music <laughs> you know, from his wife some of the criticisms of the book were really? that he tried to relate in that way and that people found that offensive because oh if you're a heroin addict who's like spending huh. all your money that, that which i found funny because i didn't take it offensive at all as an no. addict i thought like it's a person trying to relate trying to connect and See, anyway. I felt like it was even more than that because, and, and the guy, the author's name is Gabor Mate for anybody who's interested in reading any of his work. He's got a pretty good book on ADHD as well. Yeah. Uh, and another book that he just wrote that I haven't read yet. Um, but he, it feels like that was part of his process of coming to this place of compassion hmm. was identifying in, right? Was being able to realize that like every human, if they look hard enough, has this behavior mechanism. It's just that, some of us, I guess, don't need the escape in as drastic a form, maybe. And, and I feel like that's what led him to see, like, we need to address this differently because yeah. we're all kind of like this. So anyway, not yeah. to get too far off, but that's a good book to give you some point of reference for what's uh, yeah. some pretty major harm reduction strategies that they're trying in canada well and the the people we talked to uh were from that general vicinity i don't mm -hmm. know that they were directly in vancouver um on that episode that we did what what was that even about i don't know it was about harm reduction methods yeah. and how they feel like the abstinence voice doesn't have enough voice in this area um so who wants to describe the program i mean it's not oh you Ken? guys are looking at me yeah. <laughs> Jenny, jenny's gonna report nice <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope I do a good job. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for this part, but so we'll uh, we'll mansplain anywhere you. <laughs> okay, <forget. laughs> we'll fix it. Appreciate that, guys. Ah, um, 
so the city of Vancouver has a space, like an indoor space, and people, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how they qualify for the program, can come in and get fentanyl dose four times a day to maintain their, with, you know, just prevent withdrawal. And it's a clean environment, and I think they have to, so the, the drug dose is measured. I'm not sure how they test to see how much you need. But I I remember it's it's near the end of the article. I think they talk okay. about they start you at a pretty low one, but then they monitor you over time and like they bump it up to where it prevents the withdrawal symptoms from happening. Okay. Yeah. I think that's similar to what they do with methadone as mm-hmm. well. You go in and you figure out what your dose is and it's individualized. Right. I was shocked how much this man needed yeah, in the article. Yeah, like 30,000. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was looking at my notes to see if I had that sample. Okay, so he here it is. He receives 30,000 micrograms of fentanyl at the dispensary each day. That is vastly more than would kill a non-user. A doctor would typically prescribe about 50 micrograms. 50 micrograms versus 30,000 micrograms. So this was a multiple decade user mm-hmm. um, and that was featured in this article. I don't remember if they operate 24-7, but if you can come in four times a day, I guess, you know, at least 6 a.m. to 9 at night or something. Right. And um, that's that. You want to mansplain the rest? Yeah. Well, more <laughs> or less, they're giving out medical-grade oh, fentanyl. Yeah, it's that's, free. I forgot that part. Yeah. But, that's, but it's, it's also- It's not free. They have to pay for it. Yeah. It's $10 a hit. Yeah. Just like it is oh, on the I street. Oh, I that Match part. what it would be on But the they street. do say that they're funded to cover anybody who doesn't have it. But like what they're hoping to see and what I think they've seen in a couple of cases, and because this isn't technically the first place that's doing it, but they're very limited. Um, and hopefully the idea is once you are stabilized enough that you don't have this daily battle of like, how am I going to get more money? How am I going to get the next hit? How am I going to do this? That you can go and work a job. And then you can pay for your hits at $10 a piece. Yeah. And the idea was that if it's cheap enough or at least matched what the cost was on the street, that you wouldn't turn to street drugs. Like if, you know, obviously for most addicts, money's an issue, you know, <laughs> coming up with money to support your habit is hard. So if you can keep it cheap as it would cost you on the street, you're more likely to go to the program. And I guess the biggest issue, too, is it's regulated. So you know what you're getting every time. It's not like tainted with other things because that's what kills a lot of people. And then so by managing this program, you are needing ambulances less, uh, police less, and uh, reducing crime in the area. Though reading through the comments, people who live there say not so much. But we'll get into that, I guess, in the show. Um but the point is, is is redirecting the funds from emergency, like too little, too late, into, hey, let's prevent this death or crime. And, and that's what I got out of it, right? The, the idea is, number one, save lives. People are dying because they don't know what the fuck they're doing, right? And, and when I say don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're purchasing on the street. They have no idea the concentration of fentanyl in it. Fentanyl has, you know exacerbated the opioid crisis by leaps and bounds because people don't know how much they're getting. And if you get a little too much, it's, it's the end of your life. And so step one, save lives. These people, the the theory is people are not going to stop using until they're ready, whatever that means. You know, we say that a lot. I don't even know what the fuck it means, but they're not, no matter what you do, we can beat people. We can moralize with them. We can lock them in a basement. Like they're generally just not, they're going to find ways to use. So, Let's prevent death. 
And then the secondary, you know, thing is it stabilizes their life. So maybe they can actually live and function in society. And then I think, you know, from the compassionate standpoint, the third thing, but maybe this is the seller to the taxpayers, is that it costs way less because it costs less to treat it up front than it does to overburden your healthcare system down the line. You know, when your grandmother's having a heart attack, there's an actual ambulance that is available to come get her because they're not taking care of the 48 people who are overdosing at the same time in your town. Yeah. And to me, it, I mean, when I read it, I, it didn't seem like a huge deal. Like I'm like, yeah, it's another, uh, like a maintenance medicated assisted treatment program. Like to me, what's the difference between what drug we give them? I mean, when right. you're a hardcore heroin user, you know, or, or now fentanyl user, I guess that's the thing now, like that's what you want. So why, you know, if you're just going to tell them, well, we won't give you that, but we'll give you something else. Well, fuck that. I can go get fentanyl on the street. <laughs> like That's what I'm going to go right. get because that's the best, you know, and and it didn't seem like anything overly shocking to me. <laughs> I was actually kind of taken aback when you shared that with me the other day. I was because I didn't think of it that way. I was like, this is a big deal. We're giving out drugs to people. Right. But like. <laughs> We've already been giving out drugs <laughs> right. to people. We give them methadone. We give them Suboxone. We give an abuse. Like we always, we've been giving people stuff forever. Like right. why is it different depending on what drug? I don't know. I, Feels different. We moralize the drug. Again, it gets right back to what, you know, we always do. We moralize like the drug is the problem, you know, and like an alcoholic is somehow different than a, you know, weed smoker is somehow different than a heroin user is different. Right. You know, it's like, no, the underlying symptoms of a person in chronic use disorder are the same. And the symptoms are a lot the same and the consequences are a lot the same. The treatment is a lot the same. You should have been there for that alcoholism versus drug addiction episode. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the only difference we came up with was that society looks at them different. That yeah. was it. That is why the person who needs another glass of alcohol isn't out there sleeping with somebody to pay for it because it's legal and cheaper. And Yeah. Now, one of my concerns with this particular program, and I've heard this in other uh, Medicaid-assisted treatment programs, is that by the government or the states providing substances to people, you actually drive the street costs down, making it cheaper and more affordable, which theoretically opens the market up to people that otherwise wouldn't be in the market. I mean, I don't know how realistic <laughs> that is, really? but the idea is that by, you know, putting cheaper, more affordable drugs out there, that drives the street price down. That sounds like the most ridiculous bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You're sitting at home and you're like, oh my God, honey. Drugs just went down to $5 a pop. We can afford them now. Let's go get high. Well, I don't know that that's going to encourage new users, but it's going to make this bigger supply more, you know. I follow you. Yeah. If if you could pay, so you're saying the street drugs are going to be cheaper than the government-funded drugs? Yeah, because if, if I'm a drug dealer and I know you can go to the state and get medical grade safe you don't know what i just cut the shit out of my stuff with stuff why would you want to come to me like oh they're charging you 10 well i'll give you mine for five you know like and they'll deliver yeah 
Hmm. And you don't have to be on a program or nothing. You can just call me whenever. Like, that's the idea. Mm. Now, I, and I don't know that making them expensive is the answer because that's kind of stupid. Then <laughs> people will just go to the street guy anyway. But that was, a, you know, that was one of the concerns that I read. And I just, I thought it was oh. interesting. I was like, yeah. yeah, I can, I mean, I can see where they're coming from. I just don't know that that's means you shouldn't do it. I think the hope from the government by free drugs was to put, um, like crime dealers out of business, but it sounds like, you know, that's going to come first. The phase you're talking about would come first before you put them out of business. Yeah. The problem is that those programs aren't implemented near to the level of demand that we have for the street drugs. These, this mm, state run right. or federally run programs aren't near enough to meet the need. Not yet. Well, um, right. I have a question, you know, alcoholic here, non, non hard drug user. Would you guys want to do this program if you were, Still using again? Would you want to go like shoot up in a McDonald's or? I never wanted to do any of the maintenance programs, but only because I was like, I want to get high when the fuck I want to get high. I don't want to have to be somewhere at a certain time and report into a place. That was just me. I mean, I had friends that did it, but I would sleep in their motherfucking alley. I would love this. (laughs) Well, that's one of the problems, I guess. And it sounds like that's what's happening. (laughs) That is exactly what's happening. That doesn't take away from your high, like being watched and monitored. And like sitting, okay, don't know, never been there. Yeah, see, and it did for me. Like that's like I liked using in a like partying type environment. I just I liked using around other people. I typically I wasn't a person that like went and hold up in a seedy motel and used by myself. Like that's just not the way that I used. I used way more in social environments, social settings. Billy's not a real addict. Nah. wasn't hardcore <laughs> like, i was like medium core right. <laughs> medium core heroin user i love it um i don't know i'm picturing like if if i knew if say the food industry was not regulated and mcdonald's had burgers for five dollars but you weren't really sure what the fuck they were making them out of or you know for all we know it's soil and green like uh, who knows and then you know the government steps in and they're like man there's a lot of unsafe burger eating going on people are fucking dying we're, we're gonna create u.s burgers that's the new fast food joint and our burgers are ten dollars but it's definitely safe i'm probably going for the safe burgers as long as i can afford it like right i'm not choosing i'm like i don't know about that five dollar burger what the fuck am i getting what if the McDonald's had a fun land, but there's no fun land at the government? I mean, joint? does McDonald's ice cream machine work? Because then maybe I'm going there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm getting that shake that I don't know what's yeah. actually in it. Who knows? Or just, you know, again, without knowing the specifics in this case, like, can I just go there whenever I need to or want to? Like, or, or are there limited times and hours? And mm-hmm. again, they are saying you get four, four doses a day. You know? Right. What if I want five? What if I want to smoke weed or do some other drugs? Yeah. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls.
one of the things that stands out to me about this program that I guess contradicts my my old theory of like we need to just have big warehouse environments where there's beds and you just give out whatever drugs people want all the time but you can't take them off premises i like that idea but this this idea they're going for the idea that once we stabilize people's lives they can rejoin society right and then maybe that rejoining society that connection helps them want to do something else besides the drug right and my version doesn't have that. And so I wonder how much my version actually perpetuates addiction because everybody's still isolated in this warehouse mm, or whatever yeah. and not part of society again. And I believe it was uh, Chasing the Scream. Uh, the guy gives a history. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he gives a history of, you know, the war on drugs and leading up to the war on drugs. And he actually talks about that. Like we used to have it where you could go get drugs from a doctor and that's mm -hmm. what people would do. You would go see a doctor. You get, I think it was morphine back then yeah, or medical morphine, whatever the drug was. And you would just go get morphine from the doctor. But you were expected to still like be a functioning person in the world to have a job to take care of yourself and all that stuff. And it just was looked at differently before the war on drugs came about and moralized it the way that we do now. So we just need to give everybody a card for everything. You got your medical <laughs> right. methamphetamine card, right. your your medical mushrooms card, whatever you need. Well, and just some things I thought about. I don't know, like, I guess because it's the biggest overdose risk, but we tend to talk about, like, maintenance programs or, like, this type of program to keep people from overdosing from fentanyl, but they really seem to only address opiate specific mm. disorders they don't address other forms of addiction as much you know and so when we look at maintenance programs or any mats or whatever i don't know that they're a solution to addiction in general they're mm. more of a limiter on opiate overdoses right. like unless i think wording that's important because addiction still happens in all these other ways whether it's sex or alcohol or you know cocaine mm. or now it's adderall and a lot of those kind of drugs you know those people are still dying and suffering as well you know maybe not as fast or as noticeably as opiate addicts but these maintenance programs aren't a solution to addiction hmm I, I think that is a good point. I, I was trying to think through it when you were saying that. I'm like, well, alcohol doesn't need it because it's already monitored by the government and, and available for purchase. So I feel like that doesn't need a replacement therapy because it's already legal. Marijuana, I'm just trying to picture <laughs> marijuana maintenance program. Like, what? Isn't that what we have now? Right. <laughs> I'm like, marijuana is not harmful. You don't need to fucking worry about that one. I, that is like how would you have like a cocaine or methamphetamine like I'm picturing uppers because that's the ones who like have a strong addictive quality to the nature of how they operate in the body and yet don't tend to have like that physical withdrawal worry about you know your medical health you know what I mean like right. you can come off of cocaine and you're not you're probably not gonna, you're not going to die like that's not what happens in cocaine withdrawal but well, you don't die coming off of opiates either you die using them thought you could possibly have seizures or something coming off of opiates and that's why the detox had to be so monitored could be but that's not most M majority of the death i mean you could technically you can die overdosing from anything because your heart could stop but right. <laughs> you know it's just not what's common is this an issue too like um one of the comments kind of alluded to this like from the article was that 
this is how we treat the poor people. We give them maintenance programs. Like if, if it was a cocaine user that, you know, that's more like addiction for people who have money and they would go to like a rehab and get help that way. And this is just kind of like, this is one of the comments was like, this is how we treat our poor people instead of giving them real recovery help. So this becomes one of my criticisms and, and I am a huge supporter of, uh, harm reduction and harm reduction strategies and techniques. It actually, the idea kind of first came up on our uh, interview that we did with the people from Canada. And it's that just providing harm reduction with no sort of recovery involved is not helpful. Like that's actually, you know, to use the word enabling, which I kind of hate that word, but to, you know, you're just enabling someone or just allowing someone to use freely until they die. And like, I never looked at my drug dealer who was providing me with drugs and maybe needles or whatever else I needed to get high and thought they have compassion for me because they're giving me drugs, you know? So if we just have these programs that are like, Hey, here's some needles, here's some drugs, have at it, you know, have fun. I don't know that that's compassion. I mean, I get where the, the idea is right. You know, the idea is we want to save people's lives, but if you're not trying to, uh, lift them up out of that or provide some sort of recovery supports, whether that's, I mean, maybe your recovery supports aren't abstinence-based. Maybe your recovery supports are, hey, we think you need to talk to just this guy, a therapist, you know, we can call him a therapist, whatever. You need to check in with Joe once a week so that Joe can just talk to you, see how you're doing, make sure you're healthy, make sure you don't have any wounds, you know, just whatever. There are different little interventions you could do with that. But I don't think just handing people drugs and saying, hey, here you go, you know, use, that's good. Like, I think that's not enough. And then you're like, Joe who? Joe mama. <laughs> <laughs> that's who you got to talk to, boy. Get your shit together. But I think that's the danger of, you know, if we just say, yeah, here's some people, just give them some drugs, they'll be okay. Like, no, we need to s provide treatment services, no matter if they are poor people or obviously if you have money, typically more resources are available. Mm -hmm. And are we providing those same resources to the people that are on these types of programs so that they can get the same kind of, you know, mental health or whatever is there are other holdups. Maybe it's financial stuff. Maybe it's housing. Is Vancouver doing that? Is it so? I, I mean, I hope that Van, this place in Vancouver is also offering alternatives to the way out. One of the big arguments against this article, when we were reading the comments, was who's going to hire these people if they're using drugs four times a day? You know, they want to help them get on their own feet by getting work, but who's going to hire somebody who's high? Mm. You know, what kind of work could they really do? And I'm just playing devil's advocate I see a lot here. of high people working at jobs. <laughs> I mean, they could do our podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'd be great. Uh, and I'm just playing devil's advocate because you know oh, I'm yeah, pro-harm sure. reduction. Right. But um, but seriously, like the one dude in the article um, using 30,000 right. micrograms a day, what kind of work could he really do? I mean, I know you have to start somewhere, but we really need a total package. Like this is nice, but how do we... It's got to fit into a bigger puzzle. When they talk about these programs, the idea is that you're not supposed to be like he shouldn't be nodding out high when he walks out of the door like the and it's the same with methadone or whatever. At least the way that they're 
presented is that the right word like the the way that they're presented is we just want to get you stable like the idea isn't to get you so fucking high that you can't move you know okay so the idea is that you stabilize and that way you're able to function because when you're in a severe withdrawal like you don't even want to get the fuck out of bed like you hurt you're sore you're you know unable to do much so i'm kind of dumb because i didn't actually know that like we're just getting like not having used like opiates myself like i didn't know that we're just getting to like a place of stability you know like so i think with me as an example educating the public is part of this we need to do part of that solution like tell the employers like they can you know they can work you know if, if they got in a partnership with you know certain like warehouse jobs or whatever like they can work we're just getting them high enough to like is that even the right word high enough we're just getting them stable so they're not in dope sick withdrawal right. and someone coming in new who's coming off the streets who has no coping skills who is in a severe place of trauma and stuff like they might need to be high as fuck like that might be what they need for hopefully temporarily <laughs> like you know but again there should be some goal of like stabilization reintegration into society how can we sort of help navigate those things what are your needs um and when those pieces aren't there, that's, to me, where harm reduction can get a little muddy. Because there are places, the more, I'm going to say radical harm reduction places, are just like, no, you just fucking give them, like, whatever they need to use with no judgment, no criticism, no strings attached, no nothing. You just hear, this is for you, go live how you want to live. I guess, I don't know, and maybe this is my tainted view or maybe i haven't even thought through it enough but just when you were talking about that idea of like we're just giving them drugs and there's nothing else to help them recover or whatever i'm like but isn't that kind of the first step on the road like just to get them stabilized like maybe you know you introduce it you're like hey look we've got these modes of recovery right there's total abstinence over there we have 12-step programs or smart or, or you know recovery dharma that can help you achieve those and some of those could also help if you're just interested in a more moderation attempt like possibly smart recovery or recovery dharma could assist you with that like maybe they're okay with that and they don't have specific rules about abstinence or clean time and but then there's these other methods like where we provide you know uh, maintenance medications and maybe just stabilizing someone is enough like maybe once I don't know. I'm picturing it, and it, it, God forbid, I cannot for the life of me picture what it would have been like if somebody was just giving me what I needed drug wise right. throughout as much my as day. I wanted. <laughs> well, I can't picture what it would have been like, but I feel like my entire day was centered around how do I get more? And if it didn't have to be, there's a fuck ton of room in there for like, well, what else do I want to do? And I guess to me, that's like, well, okay, maybe that is step one. And they, they heard you talk about the other things, right? Maybe they get there and they want that eventually. But just getting them to feel like they can get through a day and they don't have to have the total 24-hour focus on how to get more of this to get through the day, I feel like that opens up a lot of space to be a first step in recovery. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I guess maybe I didn't say that well, but that's exactly what I mean with the guy that's on the 30,000 whatever's a day like maybe that's where he needs to be to stabilize for now but i would think the hope would be that one like he's still functional at that level i, I don't 
I'm not sure. I don't know the effects right. at what levels, but let's all do 30,000 milligram micrograms and see what let's happens. Let's say he's not like, not that's it. okay. We're not trying to tell him he can't have that, whatever it takes to get him stable. But hopefully in six months, a year, two years, whatever, he stays on the program. He gets that level to a place where he is functional and stable and whatever he needs to get him there, whether it's like say crisis intervention, mental health, financial assistance, housing, whatever. You ever been getting ready to do a chore around your house, like the dishes or something, and you're like even walking towards the sink, and then somebody's like, oh, hey, can you do those dishes for me, or, or kind of points out <laughs> something about it, and now you don't want to do it anymore? <laughs> it's that same idea, right? As humans, we have a, a thing called counter will. It's the best name we've come up for, it, but it makes sense. When somebody wants to put what they want onto you, there's a desire not to anymore. And so I feel like if we can eliminate that counter will, right? Because that's what we have. We keep telling all these drug addicts uh, or people with substance abuse or disordered use of drugs. It's like, you need to get your shit together. You need to get a job. You need to do this. And like counter will instantly kicks in. Whereas if you have the whole day free from figuring out how to get the next one and you don't have this pressure of counter will of society uh, happening in your body, it's like, oh, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. And then hopefully you can uh, figure that out. I feel like that gives you more room to figure out either A, that you want to do something different or that B, maybe you really don't like the way drugs affect your life. Like, I don't have the space to even evaluate if this drug is good for my life or not. If I'm constantly battling against everyone telling me it's bad for me. Right. And that's the instant thing that happens in a human when somebody, when the whole world's like, oh, no, what you're doing's bad. What you're doing's bad. You lose the space to discover that for yourself. You're just constantly fighting. No, it's fine. It's good. It's what I need. And I believe that some of the uh, ideas behind the more person-centered care, like you talk to the individual and say, well, what do you want? Like, what are your goals? Where are you trying to be? Maybe you're going the next year to get your fucking driver's license. That's it. Okay, let's move towards that. How do we help you get there? Maybe we just get you a driver's license in the next year. You know, you let them pick what their goals are. I mean, and unfortunately, I'm just a person that believes like, there's going to be some people that just want to be high as fuck all the time and don't want to participate in society. And Can we just thing. do that? And <laughs> there, well, we have that. I mean, don't say we have that now, but that's, I'll talk to people like at my job about some of this because <laughs> we currently have some homeless people kind of living in the woods behind my work is very recent. Mm -hmm. And we're on the end of this industrial park. And this lady who looks like a mom or somebody comes and fucking drops them off all the time and brings stuff out to them and it's and they're fairly young looking people and so we'll get into conversations about some of that and the people at work they want to call the fucking cops and all this stuff and i'm just like can we just leave them alone it's not even our property they aren't hurting anybody they aren't bothering anything we have cameras up here if they come steal anything or do anything we'll have it on camera like why the fuck like it's terrible mm. like that's a tragedy to me it's so Compassion. and you know the people at work want to like moralize them and fucking kick them out of the woods they gotta go somewhere else i'm like we're at the end of a fucking industrial park there's nothing back here there's swamp back there they're back living in a fucking swamp <laughs> like but i try to express to them like they have just like they're like why don't they go to a program or a homeless shelter all those things come with rules and check-in times and you're in the room maybe with 30 or 40 or 50 other people and you don't have any privacy mm -hmm. or any space you know they're going to search through your shit when you come in every day like some people just don't want to 
go through all that. Like, it's a hassle. Like, they'd rather go live in the fucking woods and be left alone. And, I mean, to me, it seems kind of sad. I'm sure that's not their ideal situation. But if that's where they are, do we really have to punish them more? Like, mm -hmm. that seems so wrong. <laughs> well, there you go. You can tell your boss that uh, in his efforts to make the world a better place, which he believes in, he, he needs some compassion training yeah. at I'm work. I'm going to go buy one of them tiny houses and fucking drag it out there in the yeah. woods for him. Like, here, at least be in it's there you be go. wintertime. Compassion is contagious, so yeah. you'll be spreading it. Oh, they would fucking burn my car. I would get in trouble. They're already trying to get them out. Oh, they're sure they're going to come steal all our shit, and they're sure they're from the methadone place down the street and all these judgments. They Compassion training. <laughs> um, I, I guess, you know, where we were talking about with that, like the, reading some of these comments, it's troubling to see healthcare workers in a government facilitate addiction like this. You know, preventing overdoses is important, but it cannot be the sole objective in the larger battle against addiction. The goal should be to lead these people back to healthy, productive and happy lives. Giving away free fentanyl does nothing to really help them. That's where, like, I kind of disagree with that comment because I think it can be the stepping stone. Right. Do we want places along the way where they're interacting with people and where people are being kind to them and where treatment is being mentioned here and there is an option. Yes. But why are we trying to force that you need to get back to this healthy, productive and happy life? Like why is productivity number one in all our, well, capitalism, that's why, but yeah. it's like, why do we even have to be productive? Why can't we just live and be happy? And well, why do we get to choose what happiness is? Right. And you do see, I mean, I'm going to say a little more of that with the idea nowadays that's, you know, become trendy and popular of like living off the grid and being out, you know, in nature and not being dependent on, you know, credit and the energy source and the food system. Mm -hmm. Like we are starting to get some hints that like, hey, maybe this machine that we've created isn't the only way to do things right like maybe there are some right. alternatives and maybe that's what some of these people wanted like they don't want to be a part of our society or what we're doing here and can't that be why, okay like, why don't we have like alternative societies available you know what i mean like oh hey you guys just want to live off the grid we totally got a, a state for that like just drive out to fucking wherever freeloaders <laughs> we got a state where people who just want to live off the in. land live They're paying their fair share what words you want to hear <laughs> like, the productivity thing stuck out to me too when i was reading through the comments so many comments were like productive members of society you know you got to back and I, I wasn't sure how i felt about that but um i think like in canada because of the socialized medicine, if they're going to take from the health resources, such as um, fentanyl or ambulances, then they should be giving back. So I get that there's a trade, there, you know, like a trade there. But I mean, yeah, if you want to be a hermit and live in the woods, you should by all means be free to do that. But an ambulance can't come get you, mm. you know. I'm not sure. So I, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about this, but I, I understand what people are grumbling about in the comments. I just don't know how much emphasis I put on like the value of a human is how productive they are. Well, you know? and, and I think one of the comments you're talking about, it's like, it's usually something like when you're ready to make the change, okay, how long are the rest of us going to have to wait, endure it and pay for it? And what about our quality of life? And that's like, that sticks out to me because I'm like, one, you're already paying for it and you're paying <laughs> right. 10 times the cost because we're not doing it in upfront. 
Right. Right. You're paying for all the back end healthcare costs. So to question whether you should pay for it, you already are. Fuck's the difference, right? You're actually paying less now. That's that's what we're trying to tell you. And, and the whole what about our quality of life? Like my quality of life doesn't go down because someone else is using necessarily. I mean, if it's a family member, it sucks ass. If it's a close friend, it fucking hurts. But my quality of life doesn't go down because people choose they want to do drugs somewhere else. Like, right. I don't know. That, that well, really bothers the, me. Well, some, oh, oh, yeah, some of the testimonial the in the place. comments was like how dreary the blocks around this um, dispensary have become. Like people on the streets, uh, like nodding out. It's just become like a hub for drug use. Maybe it already was. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it already was. Well, yeah. That's why Vancouver's so drastic is because it already was a fucking but disaster. I guess, yeah, and I right. guess there's like crime and you know, like people sleeping on the street and going to the bathroom on the street and like It already yeah. was, but there's the whole, you know, which came first, the chicken or the right. egg, because they have, you know, the housing programs and things that they have there. They have a housing program that was basically set up to be like, look, if you're homeless, just come and we'll just put you up in one of these rooms and it costs you nothing and you do nothing in the Portland, Portland Hotel Society. Um, and so they, you know, have different what we would call more radical programs. But on top of that, now there's like a huge open air drug market because, you know, typically people that are homeless or that need a lot of those services are suffering with addiction and mental health issues so it's like when you build it that's who comes you know mm -hmm. so then that's a centralized location it's similar to what's happening in uh skid row in la is the same way what la decided a bunch of years back is hey We'll centralize all these services that we need for homeless and social security and all this different, you know, veterans benefits. Like we'll put all that stuff into one area of the city. Well, that's where all the people that need those services come. So now you have a huge tent city that's blocks long because they don't have the resources to travel 10, 15, 20 miles. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They need to be where the services are. So if you were a person that had property in that area, mm -hmm. you're now dealing with that. Yeah, there's there's not, besides the, you know, my version of the warehouse off in the distance that <laughs> nobody ever has to be bothered with, but, you know, that has its own drawbacks. There, There is a consequence to that. But I, I guess what these people are seeing, and there was a comment about how while the person's area that they've been living in for a long time didn't look any different, there was less crime. And that's what I thought was the fascinating one. They're like, yeah, it still looks pretty rough, you know, when you come into my part of town, but there is way less crime because of all the, not just from this particular intervention, but all the interventions, right? right? The, the place to live and you don't have to be, you know, quote unquote clean to live there. Like you can just live there for no good reason and use and do whatever you want lifestyle. Like those kind of things have created this environment that people don't need to be participating in as much criminal activity to get what they're looking to get out of their life. And so, I mean, I, I think there is that portion of it. Like crime does, if you give everybody the drugs they need, there's no crime. There's right. really like literally almost no crime because that's what crime is around. It's around getting money for more or selling it or getting it or possessing it or that's what everybody's locked up for. Yeah. And there's a something to be said for 
you know, there are consequences to having a huge society that has a lot of needs and resources. You know, like w- when we talk about gas prices right now that are super high, everybody bitches and complains about gas prices, but yet we haven't built a refinery in this country since the 1970s. They can't really build one because we've set the regulations to be so difficult. And every single person's like, yeah, well, I don't fucking want one in my neighborhood. Like, mm-hmm. I'd love cheap gas, but you can't build a fucking refinery two miles from me. Fuck that. I'm going to fight you every step of the way. And unfortunately, you know, when we have these big societies with lots of people like mental health, substance use, you know, traumatic experiences, PTSD, like all that comes with it. And to just say, well, that's fine, but it needs to go somewhere else. <laughs> like, you know, that seems to be the attitude. Like, we yes, can be compassionate over there. It's not in my backyard. Right. I want to read this comment. Um, Vancouver did the math. This was a comment on the New York Times article. Vancouver did the math. Cheaper to provide addicts drugs and set up de facto government zone ghettos than provide the support the addicts need and possibly raise taxes. So, some of the observations I read in the comments were that, um, well, one, this is just like a small band-aid on the problem because you need the whole s- system to support someone in recovery. And the other part was that politicians are saying yes to dispensaries because people like it. It's, you know, like uh, people are like, oh, good, you're trying, but it's actually not solving the problem. Like it's it's a it's a political thing and it's setting up these this person called government zone ghettos. Well, um, solving the problem to me is interesting because that's part of the reason I brought up the different types of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone that's a heroin addict wants to be on a maintenance program. Some people do, and that's fine. I don't, I'm not trying to judge them, but some people do want to be the fuck off and they want to be abstinent, and that's fine too. Like none of these is a one size fits all going to fix the fucking opiate problem that's so true we have this conversation we should stop calling it addiction this is just like right this is this is a treatment for opiate use disorder you know is what this is that's all that it is it's not you know now again if there is a recovery program attached to it in some way shape or form then you might be able to call it recovery but this is treatment you know we get these words all intertwined but this is treatment for opiate use disorder like a medical treatment for an opiate use disorder Mm -hmm. recovery can mean a whole lot of things and typically encompasses a lot of the services that that comment made. And I think the two of those things together are the best situation. You know, one without the other is sort of pointless. Well, and and I do think we as a society, especially people maybe not as in the mix as people like us, you know, they're just your average everyday guy out there or gal. Normies. Yeah. There is not going to be this thing that comes along that solves or fixes addiction. Right. It's just not going to happen. There's not going to be a pill. There's not going to be a practice. You're not going to, it's not going to be prisons. It's not going to be free drugs. None of this is going to solve the problem of addiction. That is like a whole other, if, if there is a quote unquote solution for this, it's going to be in like changing the way we are as a society fundamentally right. on a level over like a hundred years that that's going to be the solution so i'm hoping for aliens that's well, what i feel gonna, similarly about crime. Come back. i mean I, I, me personally i feel similarly about crime crime isn't about bad people it's about 
typically poor people that are desperate to try to survive. And so they're doing what they got to do. And there's some other types of crime, you know, that are different. But right. the large part of people that are in these types of situations committing crimes are just desperate. <laughs> well, I, I guess I just think maybe if we s can move away from this idea that we're going to solve right. the problem, right? Maybe we can attack some of the separate little problems like, hey, first, let's just stop people from dying because right. that's, that's a great you. fucking priority, right? And then from there, let's think about other things that can possibly shift to make an environment where these people might want to stop, right? Let, make them, maybe let's motivate them to want to be part of it. it. You know, if you talk about systems theory and, and family therapy, we always have the, the scapegoat, right? One of the children in that family dynamic is the scapegoat. They're the ones who are causing all the problems according to everyone else in the family. But the therapy world views that as they are the person who can't tolerate the dysfunction in the family system as a whole and is going to speak up for everybody about it. Like other people can ignore it. They can just, you know, well, I'm just going to work. You know, I'll leave that family dysfunction at home, whatever. They have their escapes. But this one individual is like, no, I'm just not going to tolerate this. And I'm going to say what nobody else is saying. Even though it doesn't look like that, it just looks like they're causing problems. And so to me, that's exactly what's happening with this. Like a lot of us in society are willing to overlook the ways that we don't act very family oriented or, or, or very nicely towards others, right? We ignore fucking homeless people. We ignore all the problems in the world. We don't help our struggling neighbors, whatever it is. And these people are like those scapegoat children who are, you know, screaming in a way there's a fucking problem in the way we live. And the rest of us are just kind of ignoring it. And I think, you know, it was that idea was kind of proposed in, in the realm of hungry ghosts, right? They're like the people who are unwilling to tolerate this way we live. And most of us go along with it. So the burdens on all of us is what I'm trying to get at, right? You don't fix that family system by helping that scapegoat child get better. You fix the whole system. Everybody's got a part to play in acting differently that creates things. And, and I mean, I have watched this in my house. My daughter was obviously the scapegoat, right? Running away, doing all kind of crazy behaviors. And we have had a family fucking shift, all of us. And she's now back home with us and things are going well. And it's like, damn, was it all her all along, right? It sure seemed like it when it was going <laughs> on. But maybe it was all of us and we all had to change a little to make it work. And I, I guess I just view this problem the same way. These aren't terrible people these are people screaming that there is something fucking wrong with the way we live yeah and i guess this goes more towards the compassion like at what level do we all feel a responsibility to help make our communities better you know i i don't know there's not an easy that's an individualized answer and for some people it's fucking nothing i don't owe anyone anything they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps I would argue that that's, I think, what we've been trying for a while, and that doesn't fucking work, yeah. <laughs> you know, or at least overall it's not worked. Or maybe it's not, and again, I, maybe I'm wrong. It's worked for some people. There are a few people that come out of those situations, they find, they get empowered for whatever reason, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, go on to college, but that works for a very small percentage of people. So that's okay for some people. Some people are going to need a maintenance program. Some people are going to need an abstinence program. Some people just need some mental health addressed, and then they'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And some people are just going to use till they fucking die. Like, that's just 
it's a broad problem that comes from a lot of places and there's going to be a lot of solutions. Yes. You know, this idea that we look at this is better or that's better or that doesn't work or this works, you know, they can all work if they're done right. <laughs> and and here's what you need to know in that, people. You can either spend 10 times the amount of money trying to pay taxes that supports your, your local hospital situation and Jail. jails <laughs> and all these things and also have some of these people who are just going to use forever coming and stealing off your fucking front lawn. Right. And you'll feel morally right. Yeah. <laughs> or you can pay a tenth of that price and just give them drugs. Right. <laughs> right. They don't steal your right. shit. I don't know. Like, why do we have such strong opinions about what other people need to do? Out of fear. Um, <laughs> yes, fear. So do you think that what's going on in Vancouver, is this still an experiment or is this like fact? You know, this this scene. So it's hard to say because maintenance programs are so, I don't want to say dependent, but they're they're the evidence is so dependent on the program itself. Like what is, what is the program set up to do and how do we measure successes? You know, what is a success? What is a failure? Because I know like around here on some maintenance programs, you can be on a maintenance program and you can still come in and test dirty for other drugs and continue on that maintenance program. So, you know, I, does that just mean, okay, you're better because you're doing less street heroin, but you're still doing street heroin, so your risk of death is still very high. You know what I mean? So is that a success or not? And I don't know. I'm not saying it is or isn't. Right. I'm just saying it gets complicated on what are we saying is a success. Or are they a success just because they've been on a maintenance program for a year? You know, I don't yeah. – it, it's tricky. You know, it's it's tricky. But – I think any of these programs that are supplemented with some sort of care and compassionate interventions for recovery are going to benefit. I think there's evidence to that. And if you're looking at just research, I mean, they've done some of these pilot programs. This is, again, another pilot program. It's I think only they said like there's 100. Yeah, it's like 100 people, people it can hold. So there, there is evidence that these types of programs have shown in, you know, these uh, trials to at least, if nothing else, lessen overdose deaths, yeah. <laughs> right? So that's why they keep implementing them and keep trying them and keep gra grabbing the research. But I, I feel like even to call them a success, like some of the comments say like, you know, oh, the idea of success that's laid out in this article is addicts who've been using for decades and still have no jobs and aren't doing anything. And they're like, well, that's not success. Well, and it's like, well, what are we measuring? Is right. it just the fact that we're keeping people alive? Because there's definitely people in the comments who, and, and I'm not saying that they're shitty people from this perspective, but they're like, why? People should suffer from their own consequences. That's what works. Well, and in fairness, I wonder that sometimes, too. I mean, I can't parse out how much of the legal consequences or, you know, that stuff, moral failures that I felt, whatever, I hate to say it that way, but the shame and guilt that I felt from, you know, being moralized, like, I don't know how much that contributed to my desire to change my life. You know, I, I can't honestly say, and I, I don't know that moralizing and shaming people is right. I don't think that's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's like that does, that pain does motivate some kind of change. It does. But I, I feel like every time, and, and I'm with you, I can't go back in my life and do something different. So I can't know for sure. 
But when I look back at when consequences have helped me change, it's when the consequence felt bad for me, not when other people said, this is bad, here, you're going to be punished for it, right? Like nothing I did as a child that I got punished for that I thought was fine because I was just having a good time. Never did I think, oh, I've learned my lesson from that. I learned <laughs> I don't want to get caught next time. Right. Right. It's only when I encountered that thing of like, oh, this doesn't feel good for me. That's when I've changed. And that's why I feel like this whole idea of consequences falls short. Like somebody else putting me in prison for something I didn't think there was a problem with. That never, that didn't make me think I need to be different. It made me think I didn't like prison, but. And for myself, a large part of. Like I knew or, you know, quote unquote knew what I was doing was wrong and it didn't feel good and it didn't feel like the way that I wanted to live. But nobody was proposing things that felt helpful or no one was asking me, hey, what are you trying to do here? Like all it felt like people were saying was like, look, just stop doing these drugs and go get a fucking job. And, you know, and it was I can't get a treatment for 30 <laughs> days. And when you get out, don't get high anymore and you'll be fine. And it's like, well, duh, that, thanks. <laughs> that way of living fucking hurts. Like right. that sucks. I feel like I'm in pain and I don't want to feel like this. And when I take this substance, I feel better. And if your only solution is stop taking the fucking substance, eh, I'll take the consequences. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Some opponents to this program say that normalizing drug use um, ends the stigma and shame of addiction. And there's like, you know, there's big movements to end the stigma and shame of addiction, but they think that that will keep people in addiction. And I don't, I don't know that that's true, but by like a certain amount of stigma or shame should be attached to addiction to motivate people to get out. And I don't, I don't know how. I think, I'm sorry not to cut you off, well, but I think people also worry, confuse <laughs> uh, addiction and drug use. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're, to me, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with people that can use drugs and function in society like that should be OK. I don't know why that. But I think we tend to think, oh, if you do cocaine, you're a fucking addict who has a problem like mm. people. I'd argue the heroin thing. People say there's recreational heroin users. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'll report back when I try. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that, you know, I'm just saying I never met one or saw one. I know people that recreationally drank or recreationally smoke weed or whatever. Those are a little easier to pick out. Um, but just because someone does illegal drugs doesn't make them an addict. I, I want to walk you guys down this kind of thought experiment thing that happened to me and see if we can wrap it around to change our view on this or maybe change somebody else's view okay so i i read this article headline uh a couple months ago and it said something about like research has found that most suicides aren't attributed to mental health and i thought it sounded absurd i was like who the fuck takes their life in in their right mind right who would not see that like this feeling won't last or it'll get better or life is worth living, whatever. I'm like, you would have to be suffering from a mental health crisis to want to end your life. Right. So I was like really fascinated. So I, I asked my coworkers in our little online chat, I was like, what do y'all think about this? We talked it through a little bit and we kind of came up with this example of like, okay, so who could take their life and everybody in the U S would kind of think, oh, I, I get it. 
that makes sense to me, right? When could we ever have that instance? And we thought of like a prisoner of war. Okay, you're a prisoner of war. You're getting brutally and viciously tortured every day for a year. And you decide you just, you'd rather not be here and you end your life. And we felt like pretty much everybody in the U.S. is going to agree with that. Like, oh, I, I get that, right? You're getting brutally tortured, of course. Yeah, with no hope of it ending. Totally understand why you would take your life. That's sane. It's a sane decision now. Why do we think that anybody that takes their own life isn't also being tortured brutally every day and in that level of pain? So now every suicide becomes a sane event because obviously if they're feeling that same internal feeling that the person who's a prisoner of war, who's getting brutally tortured, having their teeth pulled out, their fingernails ripped, right? So everybody that commits suicide must be doing a sane thing. And I felt like that shift in that was like, oh, fuck. And I feel like that kind of applies to this. Like we have this moralistic view that suicide is wrong. Right. But it's because we can't see the unspeakable pain that people are in, even though we understand it when it's given an external situation. And from that lens, I'm like, why can't we just give people fucking drugs if they're in that much pain without them? We can't see it. We wouldn't hesitate if we saw their fucking leg broken and mangled to, to give them, you know, painkillers. We'd be like, oh, my God, they need that. So why can't we just understand that that's exactly where these fucking people are or they wouldn't need it right i i mean i think the debate would be or argument could be that there are other ways to deal with that pain that are better you know like the are prisoner there? of war taking their life is a way of coping with that but maybe you know i don't know escaping is a better option or having hope yeah i'm just saying and I'm not saying I agree. I'm just saying there are people that would say giving them drugs is not helping. It's actually making it worse. And that what they need, there are other interventions that might be better than that. So would we do that if we saw somebody in a, in a terrible car crash who was like clinging to life and obviously very much in pain because maybe some of their fucking organs are hanging out from the accident? Would like we ever walk. say, <laughs> would, would we, we ever that? say, Oh, well, maybe there's some other interventions besides pain medication that we should give them. Well, what I mean is like... Let's pray over with, them. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, what, what else I mean is do? like with... with like there are other forms of pain management than just giving opiates. Like that's not the only form of pain management available. There are other things people can do for pain management. Well, that's definitely what we do when people are in crucial pain and arrive at the hospital. So if we've got better methods, why aren't we using them? That's a good question a lot of people will ask. Why don't pharmaceutical companies invest more money into alternative medications? There are out there. There's research that shows that they are out there, but that's not where the money's invested. The money's invested in the development of pharmaceuticals, opiate-specific pharmaceuticals, and now fentanyl. Whether you're on the conspiracy thing because it's cheaper, easier, whether somebody just flipped the coin one day and decided that's the road they were going on and now that's it's hard to say. But there are other medications out there that are not opiate based and there are other pain management programs that aren't based on giving out opiates. Do they all work in the moment the same way opiates do? Like I could understand. I, I mean, we had the yeah. guy on for chronic pain, Pete, and, and talking about like what he could do over a long period of time to alleviate his pain, but there wasn't anything on day one. Like he had to be in pain well, to go through that. I'm just making some stuff up now. This isn't 
based in really it. but stuff. there are some i'm sure like pain coping strategies like hey maybe you need to be a little bit uncomfortable like that's alleviating all your pain might not be what's best for you even right. though that feels the best that might not be what's best for you well I, I guess what i what i hope with that thought experiment is if we can understand any situation where this action might be necessary why can't we work back from that and understand that maybe it's necessary way more often and we just can't see the internal situation that we said externally would absolutely justify us doing this like if we can see an, a situation where we're like, oh, yeah, you should definitely give that person drugs. They're in fucking pain. I can see. I can see the external situation and why. If we can believe that, why can't we also think, fuck, maybe that exists inside people and I'm just not aware of it. And maybe they need that same help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't make that connection. And, and I guess that was kind of groundbreaking for my mind when i thought about the suicide in that version i was like all suicides are crazy and then there's one situation where they're they're not that's a sane decision and then i'm like well fuck doesn't that make all of them sane if people are feeling that you can't imagine being sane when you're getting viciously tortured daily but i still i'm i still get your example like um but i would say if somebody living with like in like a prisoner of war living with no hope i don't think you can be sane in that situation and that's the situation I would say everyone that is using drugs in a way that is unmanageable and, and bad for their life, that's exactly what they're feeling inside. They are a prisoner of war in their own body. Right. And I, I agree with that. I'm just saying the solution to that may not be just give drugs to all of them. No, it's like, suicide, obviously. No, well, I mean, that's, those <laughs> so aren't totally the only two options. About that, please. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know. I think to me, it just, it, it's a different way to think about it. Maybe yeah, we can sure. all think about it that way. Uh, any, any final thoughts? I'm all for it. I mean, I think the more programs we have out to help treat addiction, the better, you know, it's, it's not like the problem's getting any better. We saw with COVID addiction, overdose deaths are up. Um, right. The other issue, and we're not going to talk about it too much here, but fentanyl is also in fucking everything now. They're finding Adderall pills and all these other things. So, you know, how that's affecting overdose deaths is crazy. Potato um, chips. This type curls. of program won't really <laughs> fix that unless you want to tell someone who's addicted to Adderall that now they need to go get on a fentanyl program. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, there's some hairy stuff there that right. I'm like, ah, I don't know if that feels so good. But, you know, this is just another potential solution to a huge problem that needs more solutions. Mm. Okay. Oh, I'm all I'm all for this like progressive stuff. I bring up the devil's advocate stuff just so we can discuss it. But I mean, I, I mean, I still think this is in an experimental phase. But I'm all for it. Let's find out how this goes because this is like the best thing we got going. Okay, there you go. Uh, if you got any thoughts or feelings about the fentanyl distribution program up there in Vancouver, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear your opinions too, and we will see you soon. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>